this January, I looked up online that Erie, Pennsylvania is the snowiest city in the entire country. I like this. Most places would call this a crippling blizzard. Around here, we call it Thursday. Bragging 84 inches already this snowfall season, and that didn't even count last night. And we rank higher than Buffalo, New York, various cities in Michigan, and we put Anchorage, Alaska to shame. (laughs) Go big or go home, all right? If we're going to do it, let's do it right. So Erie's clearly known uh, for its nasty weather, but about a few months ago, this past September, it also became known worldwide for a movement that you may have heard of honoring a McDowell graduate named Alyssa J. O'Neill. You may have seen it listed as hashtag AJO. I want you to watch this quick video clip that explains it. They were grieving parents trying to make sense of the tragic loss of their daughter. They had no idea that their small act in remembrance of their little girl would result in a worldwide show of kindness. Diane McInerney explains. Alyssa O'Neill was just 18 years old when she died last month after suffering an epileptic seizure. I had Alyssa when I was very young. And uh, we grew up together. We learned a lot about life and love from each other. She was my best friend. Her devastated parents wanted to honor their fun-loving daughter by spreading some joy. Would you care for a pumpkin spice latte? So they did something very unusual. They headed to their local Starbucks in Erie, Pennsylvania, and bought pumpkin spice lattes for 40 random strangers. Thank you so much. Thank you. Why pumpkin spice lattes? Well, it turns out on the night Alyssa died, she asked her mom if they can get pumpkin spice lattes together the next morning. Sadly, Alyssa died before her mom could fulfill that wish. On each cup, they wrote Alyssa's initials, A-J-O, for Alyssa Josephine O'Neill, and encouraged everyone to pay it forward. But Sarah and Jason O'Neill could never have imagined the remarkable chain reaction their good deed would start. Within days, Alyssa's initials were everywhere, in front yards, on cars, even on billboards. An act of kindness that sparked an international movement. People I didn't know were posting pictures and writing poems, sending us beautiful art. Throughout the U.S., from Alaska to the Grand Canyon, and across the globe, from Iceland to Ireland to Brisbane, Australia, people are doing simple little things, like buying coffee for complete strangers in Alyssa's name. Even the U.S. troops in Afghanistan are paying it forward. I have never been so moved by anything in my entire life. Back home, the entire town rallied around Alyssa's family and helped spread the AJO phenomenon. Donna Reese bought dinner for everyone in this restaurant, writing this note, your check is covered tonight. All I ask is that you pay it forward in memory of Alyssa O'Neill and having the waitress deliver it instead of a check. Nobody knew that it was me doing it, and I sat at the bar, and I got to watch everybody's reaction, and it was it was unbelievable. Jim Ferranti bought socks for a veteran's home. I bought uh, 100 pairs of socks, that's all they had. They had them on a rack, and I bought what they had on the rack. Random acts of kindness that have turned a tragedy into a crusade being heard around the world. Hashtag AJO is all about hidden acts of service. It's paying for someone's meal, paying for someone's drink that you will never meet, that you will never hear a thank you from. It's not about giving credit to yourself. It's about doing, in this particular case, uh, an act to honor this tragic end to this young life. 
Now, it strikes me so clearly and so significantly why believers and unbelievers alike are so impacted by this gesture, why it's gone worldwide. And it's because this is a kingdom principle. The world has stumbled upon a kingdom principle. And it is the very opposite of this self-serving, backbiting, selfish world in which we live in. It is attractive and it's exciting and it's, it's life-giving because it's hidden acts of service. And in every moment that that happens, a holy moment begins because they're serving someone in secret. Nothing disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh like service. And nothing transforms the desires of flesh like serving and hiddenness. The flesh whines against service. It's uncomfortable, but it just downright screams and strains when it's in hidden, when it's honor or recognition. I really believe this morning, um, the notes that I've prepared to share with you and, and the, the way that I've tried to present it will have very little to do with what happens today. But what will mean something is, is if you are prepared to receive from God. So I just want to take a, a quick minute and pray. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this opportunity to be together. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would transform our hearts. God, not that we would leave here doing acts of service or being motivated to, to sign up to do something, God, but that we could become servants. God, that we could model who you are. Lord, that you would redefine greatness, that you would reposition spiritual authority in our hearts, and that we could leave here different. It's in your name I pray, amen. You know, humanity hasn't changed very much in 2,000 years. And so this is the picture of what's happening at the Passover feast. So gathered at the Passover feast, there's the disciples. And they were keenly aware that someone needed to wash the other's feet. The problem was that the only people who washed feet were the least. They were the servants. So there each of them sat with dirt caked on their feet. And it was such a sore point that they weren't even going to talk about it. I mean, everyone just came in with their filthy feet, sat at the table. No one wanted to be considered the least, especially because Jesus was going to be there. And Jesus was really important. And no one wanted to volunteer for that label. And then Jesus picks up the towel and the basin, and he redefines greatness. I'm going to read to you from John 13. 1 through 5, it says, Just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that his time had come for him to leave the world and go to his Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. It goes on to say, The evening meal was being served. I'm going to jump down to verse 4. And he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, he wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. And then he was drying them with a towel that was wrapped around them. You know, the scene here is there's a little bit of trouble in the neighborhood, okay? The disciples, they're a little bit jealous. They're a little bit competitive. There's a little bit of ego going on. I'm better. Jesus stayed up later talking to me. We had a more meaningful conversation. Jesus is my homeboy. Okay, whatever. He's, he's saying, you know, we got to figure out who's the best here. And there's this whole shifting. There's this whole positioning. And there's a little bit of bickering. And in the middle of this context, Jesus walks in into all of this and he knows what's happening. But it's as if, have you ever walked into uh, typically a family dinner and you can like cut the tension with a knife and you're like, what is going, why are we mad? You know what I mean? Like somebody fill me in. What is going on? And it, it's just this tension and that's what's happening kind of in that moment. 
And in this culture at the time, you washed your feet before dinner. Now we wash our hands, but then you washed your feet because they walked on long dusty roads. And most times there'd be a servant there to do it. That was their job. But at this particular meal, there wasn't a servant. And every disciple walked straight past the tile and straight past the basin, knowing full well what it was for. And they sat down for dinner. And you know, I can imagine, they're probably thinking, that's Thomas's job, he's the doubter, right? Or how about Peter? He'll get mad if we don't do it. His temper is crazy. Or Bartholomew, no one going to remember him anyway. You know, so let's make sure, let's just pick somebody out. But Jesus says, I'm going to walk over to the towel in the basin. And as he goes over, the disciples, once again, their jaws are dropped. Their minds are blown. They, they're like, wait a minute. Because in that action, Jesus completely redefines leadership. He rearranges the lines of authority. He doesn't necessarily reverse the pecking order, as some would suppose, but he abolishes it. He says there is no pecking order. The authority of which he spoke was not an authority to manipulate or control. It was an authority of function, not of status. And Jesus says by this action that spiritual authority is not found in position or title, but in a towel That's where he says that it lies. The other thing that I just find incredible about this passage of scripture is the the timing. We all know timing is everything. And out of everything that our Savior could exemplify, out of everything that our Savior could model to his team, he chooses servanthood. This is the group of guys, these 12 teenage guys, after the resurrection, after the Holy Spirit shows up, they are going to take the gospel ball down the field. And it's going, he's going to hand it to them. And they're going to be responsible for telling the story. They're going to be responsible for showing the love of God to all kinds of people to surround the world. And they are the ones that will proclaim and fulfill the gospel so that thousands of years later, we could know it. They're it. And it's as if, as if Jesus is saying, okay, I'm going to the cross in a few hours. This is my last chance. Boys, if you don't get this now, I don't know if you're ever going to get it. Here's my pep talk. Serve each other. Serve each other in attitude. Serve each other in action. Change how you think about how you gain authority and worth because it is upside down. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 reads this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul is writing this, and he uses this really interesting word, about making himself nothing. And in Greek, this is translated kenosis, kenosis. And kenosis is a word that describes self-emptying. On the cross, Jesus emptied himself for the sake of humanity. And, And Paul begins this verse with, in your relationships with others. So in our relationships, Jesus calls us to be self-emptying. So John 13 continues, and and, um, Jesus is washing their feet. And here's what happens in verse 12. He puts on his clothes, returns to his place, and he says, do you understand what I just did for you? 
he asked them, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. He says, but now that I am your Lord and teacher, I have washed your feet, and you should also wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And now that you know these things, you will be blessed, and you'll be blessed if you do these things. You know, Jesus, he spells it out pretty clear there, guys. <laughs> Can't really argue with that one. He's saying, I did this, so now go do it with the other people. And, and he, he very immediately separates the difference between knowing something and doing it, right? Now that you know it, go do it. The difference between just knowledge and application. You know, it is generally easier to hear about serving and even to agree with me, like from your seat, like, yeah, yeah, that's right. Wash each other's feet than it is to actually do it. Um, There was this woman who, when she was facing a really important operation, she asked her husband if he would watch the kids for the weekend while she recovered. And uh, he said, no, I already registered at church for the rally for men. I'm sorry, I have to go there. They're going to talk about serving. (laughs) I really need to hear it, clearly. All right, and so he was going to attend a conference where he would be taught and inspired to serve his wife instead of serving his wife, right? Now, We all do that, no disrespect to husbands. But what happens is Jesus says, you know, it's great that you know these things. It's great that you're aware of this example. Thank you for reading, good job. But if you have a heart to serve, it's gonna change you. It's gonna lead you down this path when you start doing things and the path that it's gonna lead you down is a path of blessing. It's a path of blessing. And I just really believe that many of us are standing right there, right at that crossroad in scripture where we know it, we know the story, we understand it. It's not theologically insane. We get it. But when are we going to do it? When? You know, service is not a list of things to do. Servanthood is a way of living. And to do specific acts of service is not the same thing as living in the discipline of serving. It is one thing to act like a servant, but it's a whole other thing to be a servant, to become a servant. God invites us to be Christ-like. He invites us to become servants. And that means we will do many acts in secret, not just when there's a worldwide movement. We'll do them regardless of whether we're thanked, regardless of whether we're applauded. We'll do them when we feel like it, and we'll do them when we don't. We'll do them when there's 18 cubic feet of snowflakes on the ground. We'll do them despite their inconvenience, and we'll do them because we're servants, and servants serve. Servanthood is freely giving up your rights. It's holding your life with an open hand, saying, okay, God, whatever I've got, you you have. Help me serve other people with it. Serving is self-emptying. It's kenosis. It's changing the way we prioritize and naturally think about life. Now, servanthood can also be quickly learned by being married to a sanguine. So um, my husband is one of the most self-emptying, serving people I've ever known. Probably many of you in this room have been a recipient of Joel's selfless life. Um, He's moved your stuff, fixed your car, towed you out of the ditch, prayed with you at the hospital, and set up your sound system. Sometimes all in one day. That happens. (laughs) So for Christmas, I bought Haley, our one-year-old, a pair of sparkly boots. 
I love these sparkly boots. I find them at Target on sale. That's, really, that's always the best when you get them on sale and you like them. And so she wore them to church a couple weeks ago, and I was so excited. She was rocking those sparkly boots. And um, we went out to lunch afterward, and I noticed, I put her in the high chair, and I noticed one of them was missing. And so I said to Joel, could you just go outside and, like, just look in the parking lot or in the car? It's probably in the car. Could you just go look for it? And he said, yeah, I'll go look for it. It's pouring rain. It was like one of those weird winter days. And so he goes out and he's soaking wet. He comes in and it's not out there. And so in the meantime, his hot, steaming, delicious hamburger arrives, right? And so he takes a bite of the hamburger and I'm like, but babe, the boots. I mean, like, I just, I can't, they're sparkly. I really need you. I can't, like, I can't eat. I cannot eat until we find the boot. And so he says, okay, all right, okay. I said, could you just, just go back to church? <laughs> it's not that far. We're at Steak and Shake, all right? Just go back to church. And can you just walk around the parking lot? Like, just trace our steps to see if you can find it. So he comes back here. He walks all the way around the parking lot. I was so afraid someone was going to run it over. It's going to be my flattened, sparkly boot. And so um, he, walks, he walks all around the church. He retraces every step. Um, they're looking all around. He's sopping wet. The hamburger's freezing cold. I did eat. <laughs> okay, so I guess I, I, guess I could. Um, and so it's just completely, and he comes back, and he's, he comes back, and he's like, I did, I'm sorry. And I'm like, oh, you know, like, this is really a bummer. And he kind of, like, finishes his sandwich, not very happy about it. So then we're all done eating by this time, and I'm packing up the diaper bag. <laughs> and underneath my chair... <laughs> is the other sparkly boots. <laughs> and so, <laughs> the casualties of Joel's servanthood were a cold lunch and a sopping wet head. But, I, <laughs> I should have. Mark Driscoll is a pastor. You may have heard of him. Here's a picture of him here. He's, um, he's a founder. He's a current preaching pastor in Mars Hill Church in Seattle. Uh, he founded a lot of networks. He writes for um, Fox News and Seattle Newspaper on Faith. And he wrote a number one bestseller last year on marriage. And um, he tells this story, not about sparkly boots, but he was about 18 and he was a new believer. And his pastor preached a message about getting involved and how God wanted to bless your life, much like, much like what we're talking about today. And so he went up to him after church and he said, Pastor, I'd love to get involved. And he said, okay, what do you want to do? And Mark said, I want to do what you're doing. And I think I could do it in a shorter amount of time. And the pastor said, well, do you want to be used by God? And Mark said, yeah, I do. So the pastor said, all right, then you meet me this Saturday morning at 5 a.m. We're going to have prayer together. And Mark thought, I don't know, Saturday had a 5 a.m. Amen. <laughs> all right. And he's 18 years old. But he shows up on Saturday morning at 5 a.m. And he walks into the room and there's five senior adult women in the room. And he, the pastor looks at Mark and he says, if you want God to use you, you stay committed to this prayer meeting. And he shut the door. And for five or six months, every Saturday morning at 5 a.m., Mark Driscoll went and prayed with those wonderful women. And Mark Driscoll reflects this. He says, my pastor knew that if I didn't learn to serve in secret, I would never be any good in public. He knew something I didn't know. I thought I knew everything. He brought me into the secret place to learn how to serve in prayer. So six months goes by, and his pastor came to him and said, well, son, do you still want to be used by God? And, and Mark Driscoll says, I think so. <laughs> what time are we talking? And he said, well, I'll tell you what. You meet me at church next Saturday at 9 in the morning. I need your help. Four more hours of sleep. Mark's excited about that. And so the next week, Mark shows up at 9 in the morning, and the pastor puts a vacuum cleaner in his hand. 
And he says, well, I'll tell you what. I need to see lines in the carpet. Lines give me Holy Ghost tingles. <laughs> How many of you would say yes? That's true about me too. All right. And for nine months, Mark vacuumed that church. And he reflected this. My pastor knew something that I didn't know. The pastor knew that if I didn't understand how to love and embrace and honor and serve the house of God, that I don't know if I would be able to speak for God in any way at all. So nine months goes by, and the pastor says, okay, you ready to preach now? Meet me at Sunday morning at 11. You're going to preach this Sunday. Get ready to preach. Come ready to preach. And Mark was so fired up. He was about 20 years old. He bought a brand new suit, brought in 30 pages of notes. That's just five less than I brought. Don't worry. And the pastor takes him back in the hallway and he opens the door to this small little room with 10 chairs in it. And he says, in a few minutes, some eight-year-old boys are going to come in here and I want you to preach to them for the next 52 weeks. <laughs> and Mark walks in and he does it. And Mark reflects this. Here's what my pastor knew that I didn't know. That if I didn't learn how to serve in the insignificant, in the small, in the areas and moments that nobody else wanted to, then how would I ever serve in anything else? My pastor knew about the heart of serving. He knew that ministry and the cause of Christ goes forward through the heart of serving. And he knew that if I didn't understand the heart of serving, that I wouldn't live a blessed life. How could I ever be a decent husband if I didn't understand the power of serving? How could I ever be a good father? How could I ever operate in leadership that it's Jesus-style driven if I didn't understand the passion to serve? How could I ever build a church, be a volunteer, be part of a small group, or help people get connected to the cause of Christ if I didn't understand that it was all about serving? See, I didn't know that, but my pastor knew it. So how do we practice the holy habit of serving? How do we discipline ourselves into self-emptying? How does this happen? I think two things. The first is to crucify our pride. Now here's the truth. Anyone can feed homeless people. Anyone can give food to the hungry or water to the thirsty. But if it is done to exalt self, if it is done to become a star, then that is not being a servant. And when our underlying motive is, well, what do I get out of it? What's in it for me? That's not self-emptying. Jesus isn't talking about doing community service hours to fulfill a, a class or, or a punishment. That is not what Christ is talking about. He, he, he's not saying sign up uh, to serve so you can post on social media so everybody can know what you're doing. Or clean out the closet of all the things you don't want so that you can give them to the city mission. That is not self-sacrifice. It's convenient and it's good and they'll use it. But that's no sacrifice to us. Motivated by self is the ugliness of humanity, and it takes the beauty right out of serving. Ironically, we come together every Sunday morning for a church service, a service that we should not expect to be served, but to self-empty to others. And if we truly are concerned about serving each other, then coming in late or complaining about the song choice or leaving early when that girl talks instead of pastor, I'm watching. <laughs> Truly isn't a service. You know, Christ is calling us to make ourselves nothing to become humble, to be a servant. And that's the invitation the Bible invites us to. And when we stoutly refuse to give in to the lust of the flesh, when we, when we say, no, I'm not going to do that, even though I want to, we crucify it. And every time we crucify the flesh, we crucify pride and arrogance. 
1 John 2.16 reads this, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. We use this scripture a lot um, when we're talking about sexual sin. Uh, although it, it works in that context, that's not all that it means. The lust of the eyes refers to the tendency to be captivated by outward show. It's, it defines pretentious egotism. It's, it's this infatuation with my ability, with normal abilities that aren't dependent upon God. And flesh is the deadly enemy of humility. It sounds something like this. I don't clean toilets. I don't wipe noses. This is a waste of my time. Pride destroys our capacity to love. Pride moves us to exclude instead of embrace. Pride means not only do we want to be smart and wealthy, but also we want to be smarter and wealthier than everyone around us. Pride is essentially comparative in nature, and pride moves us to judge rather than to serve. Pride is hard to detect, but it is a silent, deadly enemy. And in place of pride, Jesus invites us to a life of humility. He says, all who humble themselves will be exalted. I love this definition of humility. It's a healthy self-forgetfulness. A healthy self-forgetfulness. This submitted willingness. The difficult part about humanity is how do you gain it? It's tricky. It's a tricky thing to pursue because then it's not humble. And it's difficult to measure because once you start counting it, then you're not humble anymore, right? So it's a, it's a really hard thing to deal with. But more than any other single way humility is worked into our lives is through serving. It's through servitude. And humility is never gained by seeking it. The more we pursue it, the more distant it becomes. Humility will slip upon us as we are unaware, and we won't sense its presence, but we will begin to be aware of this newness, this freshness, this, this exhilaration of living well. And although maybe our demands of life will be great as ever, we will be unhurried, we'll be in peace. People maybe that we once envied, we will feel compassion. That's how you know it's changing. That's how you know something's shifting in your life, that you see someone's pain instead of their position. We will be directed by what will feel like a new control. We will know we have begun to make progress in humility when we find that what we, uh, we get so enabled by the Holy Spirit to live in the moment that we cease to be preoccupied with ourselves. We kind of stop thinking about me and how it's going to affect me and how this changes my plan for the day and what it changes about my life. And we are, when we are with others, humility will truly uh, allow us to be with them and not just think about how we can benefit from them. You know, uh, a few months ago, I was on a road trip and I always do a lot of thinking in the car. Anybody with me? You do the thinking? Nope. Okay. All right. Well, I do. And when, uh, it's about the only time I know I'm like screaming children talking to me. Um, so I was just asking the Lord, there was several things in my life I was just dissatisfied about. I didn't feel like I was doing very well. And, and I, I even made a list in the notes on my phone. You're not allowed to see it. But, but just a list of things that I really felt like God wanted me to work on. And I just said, Lord, I don't, 
know how to do this. Like, these are things that I've struggled with for years. These are things that I just don't even know how to change this. I don't know how to work it out. And it was quiet. <laughs> God doesn't always answer exactly how you want him to, right? And all of a sudden, after a few miles in the quiet, I just started singing this song by Third Day that says, please take from me my life when I don't have the strength to give it away to you. And it kind of dawned on me in that moment, that was Jesus' answer to me. That I'm going to need to work on it. There's going to be a plan. There's going to be things that I have to abstain from. There's going to be things I have to sacrifice. But most importantly, I just have to give God my life when I don't have the strength to give it to him, to ask him to take it from me. Secondly, uh, so we crucify our pride and then we, we resurrect our security. We resurrect our security. I'm so excited to have a lot of Kalfa students here this morning with me. They're there. Be excited. They're there. <laughs> on command. Uh, we had our very first uh, meeting on campus this week. It was a wonderful. It was phenomenal. You guys need to come out. You're all invited anytime to see these students worship and uh, just pour their hearts out for God. It's amazing. And we talk a lot about this idea of identity, right guys? We talk a lot about security in that. Because God couldn't love you any more than he does right now. You can delight his heart, you can break his heart, but that does not threaten his love for you. And when we start understanding that, we start living in a whole new way. Real servanthood can't exist with insecurity. Let me say that again. Real servanthood cannot exist with insecurity because our insecurities, whether we, whether we know it or not, they drive us to live a quest for self-promotion and self-protection. Am I important? Do I matter? Why did they pick that other person and not me? If I, even it wasn't the disciples, if I choose to be a servant, then how's that going to look to Jesus? How's that going to look to these other people? 1 John 3, 1 says it so simply and so powerfully how great is the love the Father has lavished on us. The more secure I am in God's love, the more free I am to be your servant. You know why? I don't have to worry about if I have the bigger slice of the pie or the shinier nameplate on the door or more letters in my name or more feathers in my hat. Do you need more analogies? Okay. I don't need anyone to pat me on the back. I don't need anyone to tell me how great I am because God has done all that and more. And now I'm free. I'm free to be your servant because it doesn't matter what you say or what you think. My security is in you. Does that make sense? And so when we remind ourselves that there's just nothing else that we can do to make God love us more or love us less, it makes us free to serve each other. Now I have a, a guest here this morning, maybe. Will you come? Okay. She wore the sparkly boots for effect. Just so you know. This is Haley. Can you say hi? In the scripture, Jesus, he took a little child in his arms. And he said, he said, here's your ministry. Give yourselves to those who can bring you no status, who can bring you no clout. Just help people. You need this little child. You want to know why? You need to help this child. Not just for her sake, <laughs> but for your sake. Because if you don't, your whole life will be thrown away on some idiotic contest to see who is the greatest. 
But if you serve her often and well and cheerfully out of the limelight, then one day, one day it will come and you will do it without thinking and you will do it without wondering what other people think about it. And then you will begin to serve naturally and effortlessly for the joy of it. And then you will begin to understand how the kingdom works. Can you say hi? <laughs> She's cute but distracting, so I'm going to put her back. <laughs> you know, serving others is the best way to love Jesus. If you don't know how to love Jesus, serve others. Serve others is the best way to love Jesus. And servanthood is the best way to love like Jesus. I really believe if heaven has a museum, I don't think that in the museum there's going to be a 3D movie of Satan writhing in flamed in agony or Stalin's death or Constantine's decree that makes Christianity a state religion. I think if, if heaven has a museum, it's going to be this small, quiet room filled with ordinary things like sparkly boots, like a cup of cold water given to a refugee, a laundry basket full of clothes washed and ironed for teenagers who never say thank you, a stack of dishes cleaned up, left by dirty people who never stayed to help, a meal cooked for a sick neighbor or a new mom, maybe a $100 bill given to an unemployed man whose giver could hardly afford it, a Samaritan's donkey, and a towel, still damp from wiping feet. Would you guys stand? Let's stand together. We've been talking about spiritual disciplines. We've been talking about living it out. And uh, this week, um, I added three prayers on the, your paper uh, that this is our live it out homework to pray these things each day. Jesus, who can I serve? Who can I serve today? Jesus, please take from me my life when I don't have the strength to give it away. And Jesus, crucify my pride and resurrect your deep, secure love in its place. Uh, we remind you every week there's a, a Facebook page um, that we're kind of talking amongst each other and talking about how our prayers are answered. Now, I know a lot of you, I see you on Facebook and you comment on all kinds of other stuff, but not in the page. I'm calling you out. Comment on the page. All right, tell us what's going on. Even if you're like, I am not doing this, then we can all dislike it or whatever. <laughs> but may, we got to be talking about what's happening. Tell your spiritual coach, if you, you, hopefully you have someone that you're working with. We talk about every week having someone that you're journeying with. Talk with them about it. But I, I want to challenge us to pray these three prayers every day. Because let's not stay the same. What a waste of our days. Jesus beckons transformation. He does not ask for perfection, but he does ask for transformation. So let's stop staying the same. Let's, let's continue to move forward and, and figure out what discipline that he is moving us to. It is going to be dangerous to ask Jesus, who can I serve today? Watch out, because he will bring them to you. But when that happens... Crucify your pride and resurrect your security. And watch Jesus redefine spiritual authority and those lines of greatness in your life and in your heart. 
So together, let's just end with this prayer. We've been praying every week together. I think we're going to put it up on the screen. Let's say it together. And now, Lord, with your help, I shall become myself. Have a great week in the snow.